0: Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by Krista Jantze van Rensburg. I think I pronounced that right. Krista is a professor of sports medicine at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Now, recently, myself and Krista and a number of other scientific authors participate in the development of a paper looking at travel and jet lag. A review of interventions in elite athletes. So we're very much looking at elite athletes. This was a systematic review paper. So we just had this published on the weekend in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. The weekend being roughly around the, the uh, 10th of April, we had it published. And uh, I thought it'd be good to have Chris on the podcast to talk about the paper and uh, some of the outcomes of a. You'll hear in this podcast, I'm quite surprised at some of the outcomes, even though I was on the paper. So I'm still surprised. So it might be uh, some things of surprise to yourself as well. And it's a, a very interesting one, given the fact that nobody's really traveling at the moment with the Corona type lockdown around the world. And we ironically talk about travel and fatigue and and, um, and jet lagging athletes. So maybe when everything starts firing back up again, might be some interventions here that you can uh, avail of. As always, head over to sleepforperformance.com.au for the show notes, access to this episode, free downloads. We have a body web book over there at the moment for Corona times if you want to download that. Uh, follow us on social media at Twitter on Twitter at Sleep for Perform or on Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for the uh, newsletter as well. Uh, we have them coming out every uh, two months at the moment now. Um, and we're going to have them sort of jam-packed full of lots of things. Um, so if you miss anything, it'll all be in that um, newsletter every two months all wrapped up there. All right, into the episode. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today we are talking about travel fatigue and jet lag and athletes. And today I am joined by Professor Krista. Now, you see, Krista, here we go. This happens every time we do the podcast. I have somebody who has a name I can't pronounce. So for our listeners, would you like to pronounce your own name before I get it wrong?
1: <laughs> sure, Jan. Yeah. It's a difficult surname. I find that when I travel overseas, people struggle to pronounce it. So my surname is Janse van Rensburg.
0: Janse van Rensburg, And uh, you are joining us today, Krista, from Pretoria in South Africa. Is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: Mm very nice part of the world. I used to do a little bit of work over there. I used to go to Johannesburg and Richards Bay quite a bit, so I'm uh, familiar with that region of the world.
1: Yes, and many of the people would perhaps know that Pretoria is the city where the Blue Bulls Super Rugby team resides from.
0: That's correct, and uh, in my PhD thesis, I actually looked at Super Rugby with the Western Force, and uh, although there's moderate altitude at uh Pretoria, maybe it's enough sometimes to uh, affect people with sleep apnea but that might be a topic for a different discussion.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) So Krista do you want to give us um, a little bit of background on your sort of role currently um, and at the University of Pretoria and your general interest and your educational background for listeners who may not know you? Sure Ian
1: so um, you know currently uh, we have a challenge Uh, at all the universities in South Africa because of the lockdown. We're not allowed to have any contact with uh, students. So uh, we're busy creating all sorts of online communication uh, lectures, you know, uh, ways to assess them. I am um, head of the Department of Sports Medicine at the University of Pretoria. So my students are all uh, studying towards becoming sports and exercise physicians. And I've been at the university uh, since 1999 when I completed uh, my studies um, and people many times ask me, you know, how did this happen? Because I'm actually a rheumatologist by trade, mm-hmm. but I also did a postgraduate degree in sports medicine and It's actually so nice to see how it it really links up to each other. So, you know, with the musculoskeletal work, um, especially, Uh, but I also have a private rheumatology practice where I see patients suffering with arthritis. And then of course, I also have a sports clinic where we see um, elite and recreational uh, athletes. I've, I always tell people, I'm so lucky that, you know, what I love and that is sport, I can actually do as part of my work as well.
0: Yeah. So as a rheumatologist, was that a background as a medical doctor initially or something different?
1: Yeah. So um, in our country, you need to first become what we call a general practitioner and then after that you can go and specialize to become either orthopedic surgeon or a physician or then in my case a rheumatologist.
0: Rheumatologist yeah and and was it always your interest or focus to move towards the sport section or did you have a different avenue in mind?
1: Yeah it's interesting so I always wanted to be a medical doctor Uh, and once I started to study that I knew I can't be a general practitioner, just the way you know I found that when I'm sitting with patients dealing with their problems in the general practice, I, I didn't like that. So I thought of because of my love for sport, I would do orthopedics. I went to be a medical officer in the orthopedics department, but didn't quite like that and thought this is not exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and I then saw this degree of sports medicine and I started that. And it was actually, you know, one day I was sitting there and the professor at that time, that was the coordinator of the sports medicine degree, um, he was also um, working in the rheumatology division and he said to me, they have a post available for a registrar, would I be interested? So it sort of, you know, happened. I never planned to become a rheumatologist, but now it works out well.
0: Very interesting, I think uh, many of our guests are like that on the podcast, sometimes the career chooses them, they don't choose the career, He just generally follow a path and, and things emerge. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so you said you had a keen interest in sport, Krista, uh, did you compete yourself in any sport? Do you have a preference uh, for anything to compete in or even watch?
1: Yes, I, I love netball, I was a national level netball player. Um, and. Then when I sort of started with practice, you know how it is, then you don't have time. So I then decided to do individual sport because you can't always be on time for team sport practices. So I then started to do a bit of running. I did comrades. I'm sure you know about the comrades race in South Africa. And I've also started to do a bit of cycling. Uh, You may know about the Cape Town Cycle Tour. So, yes, I'm a keen Uh, you know, participant, but also a very keen spectator. So I have this, uh, you know, this basket of a wish list, if you want, that I said I need to go to some of these events. And I've ticked down quite a bit of them. I'm very fortunate uh, that I've seen the 100-meter Olympics men's final in Athens in 2004. Um, And then I have a few others that, you know, I – was able to attend, but I still want to go to a few more, of course. I just love
0: sport. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of the same, you know. I have I grew up playing rugby and doing martial arts and later life, but um, my main kind of passion to compete in is endurance events too, like long-distance running. So I've done about 20 ultramarathons and uh, been getting into ultra-distance, I suppose, swimming at the moment. So before the COVID-19 lockdown, I was... Training for a twenty-kilometer ocean swim from here in Perth to one of the islands called Rottnest off off the coast. So, yeah, I quite enjoy the individual endurance activities as well. So, um, maybe someday we'll be racing uh, on the on the mountain.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that is tough. That twenty-k swim that you want to do um, and I think swimming is one of the toughest sports if you look at you know the way you train uh, you can always run with someone but you know even swimming with some, someone you can't really talk and have a nice conversation
0: yeah I think that's good for me because I probably talk too much uh, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's been a uh, quite an eye-opener the last couple of years doing I only started swimming probably yeah. to a little over a little over two years ago and as a, a long distance runner it was extremely hard because the first time i swam was 800 meters and i nearly passed out but um <laughs> yeah it's definitely be, definitely been a challenge and, and something to work towards and you're right it's a completely different sport in terms of you have to be very focused and you're in your own head for a lot of time when you can't talk or socialize and particularly in the pool uh, becomes meditative just following the line but um Seeing that it's a it's a good way to uh, to get disciplined at a, at a at a sport as well. So yeah,
1: yeah, I think it's a nice way to get your head sort of clean. You know, only your own yeah. thoughts to deal with. But what I like about running is that you know you can do it anywhere. You can really just that's right. Yeah, your shoes and you can do it. So that's really a nice activity that I like.
0: Yeah, for sure. So so Krista I'm um, What's your, uh, you obviously do some research, like you said, to start with students and so on. What's your main research focus, or what are you interested in so, more uh, broadly?
1: Previously, Ian, um, you know, my doctorate I did on rheumatology patients, where I, you know, just with exercise always being part of me, I wanted to see if I challenge a group of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. How will they respond? And it was a very interesting study. So that was my sort of initial research avenue. And then it sort of moved over a bit more to specific sport research like injury and um, illness in different sporting codes. So we've been looking at uh, cycling. Um, Currently, I'm quite interested in leading a PhD student uh, in trail running um, and another one in netball. Um, so those are the two main focus sports that I'm dealing with right now. And then, of course, the travel now, uh, you know, it, it was sort of really per accident, if I can call it that, that I ended up being interested in travel. Um, and it's just there's there's so much to do in this you know specific field that i'm really excited um on on going forward with uh, then specific travel research
0: yeah and that's a nice kind of segue into why i wanted to have you on the podcast so um kind of a declaration here to all our listeners myself and Krista were involved in a study um or a paper recently uh led by and driven by and really put together by Krista uh, with a number of different authors. And there's lots of authors on this paper. We have, uh, I think, 12 roughly on the paper, and and I am one of them. Uh, So that's a declaration there for anybody out there. Um, But I thought instead of me talking about the paper on the podcast, it would be great to have Krista on and talk about, which is um, this paper that we had published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which, if I'm not mistaken, Krista, is the world's top-ranking journal. Is it at the moment or second?
1: I'm um, sorry, I missed that
0: part now, Ian. Um, the review that we had published recently in British Journal of Sports Medicine. Is British Journal of Sports Medicine the top-ranking journal at the moment in yes. sports?
1: Yes,
0: it has an impact yeah. factor, like, I think, close
1: to 12. Ooh, that high? Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. So, there you go. So, British Journal of Sports Medicine, it's the uh, it's the hardest journal to get into and the best journal out there. So, having this review published in that is... Uh, is quite good. So the the title of the review was How to Manage Travel Fatigue and Jet Lag in Athletes. And this was a systematic review of interventions. Krista, could you just describe for the listeners who may not be familiar with what a systematic review is?
1: Yes. um, And so maybe a definition that we can give is that it's a high level overview of primary research that focus on a specific question and you then try to synthesize some outcomes and appraise all this research evidence that's relevant to this specific question and people may get confused in that you know they think a literature review is the same as a systematic review Uh, but with the literature review, you're really just trying to summarize what's out in the field. While with a systematic review, there's a lot of things that you need to do to then tell people that this is the evidence. So it's always about, you know, appraising evidence to help people going forward in that field.
0: Okay. And so with the systematic review, um. We have, like I said, a number of different authors on the paper. How did you go about selecting all these people? Like, what was your... Because you assembled this team from South Africa, so I'm just interested to know how you got all these people together. What was what was the criteria? Um, what was your basis for selecting this uh, bunch of misfits as we were?
1: <laughs> Maybe, um, Ian, if I can take one step back, um, yep. you know, why I decided to do a systematic review um, in my preparations for lectures on travel fatigue and jet lag, I sort of noticed that we don't have a lot of scientific evidence. Well, I couldn't find that, you know, trying my best. And I then had yeah. a discussion with uh, Dr. Peter Fowler, who you will know, and he's also a yeah. co-author, um, in Monaco in 2017 at the IOC conference. And he sort of echoed the same, that he couldn't find scientific evidence. So we had a discussion and subsequent to that, we decided that, you know, maybe it's time to go and ask other people to help us to, to search for literature. And um, with his help, then we identified these authors. We decided that we want to see who is actually active in the field of travel and jet lag, Um, so we went to the uh, literature and sort of choose the people that we thought would fit the bowl for the question that we're asking on this uh, systematic review. And you will notice that there's quite a lot of uh, Australian people uh, as co-authors, and then we also have a few South Africans and people from Canada. So we really tried to get a sort of an international uh, view when we did this uh, systematic review.
0: Yeah, for sure, it's a, it's quite a good distribution of people. And to be honest, when I was first invited onto the paper and I saw that are people, I thought, "Oh, good, there's actually some good people working on it." So it was um, it was quite a privilege for me to be invited on. So. Uh, thank you for that and um, it was also good to work with some other people on here that I know as well because uh, I've worked quite closely with them and it's always good to work with people you know who are going to do a good job.
1: Absolutely that's so important especially you know um, in the way that we did this um, systematic review where we had different author groups so we had I think 12 or 14 authors and then we divided them into little groups and each of them now needed to go and search the literature because that was the problem. We didn't find uh, literature and it was interesting to see how the people interacted with each other and, you know, with the experience and expertise we had in the author group, it it was a pleasure to to do this, but it was also tough. As you will recall, this took us about, well, 18 months to two years to complete.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was quite... um. I don't envy leading this and putting this paper together when you would send out drafts I was like wow I wouldn't like to be coordinating this at the moment so um, I think you did an excellent job wrangling everybody and plus writing up um, the paper because as you said there was lots of stuff out there um, in the field but I think what's really interesting is there was lots of stuff out there that was not appropriate or not applicable. And I don't know about you, Krista, but I was quite surprised when we looked at interventions, how little there was out there that was scientifically validated.
1: Absolutely. So it seems for now, if a lot of, you know, the the things we do to sort of mitigate jet lag and travel fatigue are based on opinions and commentaries. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later, but if we look at the outcomes of our review, uh, managing travel fatigue and jet lag in athletes specifically, we couldn't find any high level evidence that support any of the interventions that we're currently using, especially if we go to the field. You know, in the lab you can simulate, but that is sort of ideal circumstances. But when you go in real life, you have light exposure at times that you don't want that. Uh, you know, competitions happen at times that you're supposed to be at sleep when, when you're at home. So very difficult also to, I think, do research in this field. And um, we sort of need to, when you know, going forward, see that we can get study designs uh, that can sort of be compared in future to, to really get high evidence.
0: Yeah, and I think you've made that point really well in the introduction as well as that, you know, there's not that many well-designed actual travel or fit field-based studies. Most of them out there are simulated, but also as well, um, you know, in the in the context of, of athletes, the, the real-world stuff is probably more applicable, and that's why um, most of the literature that is out there like you said comes from these non-athletic studies so we're making inferences based upon those other papers as to what we should do with elite athletes and um may not always be appropriate for these athletes to follow that those guidelines because they're not like you know business travelers or even pilots um so it might be quite different yeah, and it's and interesting the
1: problems that we deal with you know regarding the athletes one uh would be that some of the studies that we included in the systematic review may actually be banned substances by water. So we deal with with that bit. And then also on the other hand, as you know, especially with elite athletes, they do not want to uh, take part in experiments, if you want to call it that, because they have their little routine that they need to follow and that they believe in for them to be the best at what they are so that also complicates yeah. matters to, to get people to be willing to do the research on
0: yeah i think i think that's really interesting krista because in my experience with individual athletes or elite athletes uh at least sorry elite athletic Teams, sometimes you will go in there and you will collect data and you will analyze that data, you present it back and say, look, we have this change in sleep, this change in alcohol, this change in training oil. And, and you may be asked as a researcher not to report that data because they don't want the general population to know that information. Maybe they want it as a, you know, a kind of a proprietary secret type edge over uh, uh, the opposition. Maybe they don't want people knowing how they travel. Maybe they don't want people knowing how to deal with jet lag. So it's not always as easy, as you say to get individual athletes or teams to participate in your research and then be allowed to communicate broadly and publish research. So it can be quite difficult.
1: Absolutely. So definitely the one side people don't want you to publish, if I can call it negative effect you know on on what they're yep. doing and then also on the other hand they don't want to to let the cat out on the things they do well so you know if you ask a team i want to follow you while you travel but i need to know um how much you sleep what you eat um you know what's your training intensity all those kind of things they think it will take away their sort of winning edge so yes i you know, to get them to be part of the research studies are really tough.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not as easy as uh as people think. And interestingly enough, Krista, um I was at World Sleep Congress last September in Vancouver and a number of us were there who cross over both domains. So, you know, myself, I'm classically a chronobiologist or a and sleep scientist, probably similar to Greg Roach and Charlie Sargent. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas someone like Shauna Haldson would be more uh, exercise physiology who deals with recovery. And obviously, there's overlap. But um, at Sleep Congress last year, many sleep researchers who don't deal with athletes had this idea that elite athletic teams were, number one, providing lots of funding to look at these problems which was not true number two that there was yeah number two that there was lots of elite athletes and elite athletic teams participating in research which again was not true and three they thought that there was you know a, a paucity of people out there doing this type of research and um you know working with people like Fitbit or Whoop and you know and it just wasn't true and so myself and Charles Samuel's we're talking about this and Michael Gradner in a symposium session is that the reality is, is that most of us um, who are looking at things like sleep or jet lagging athletes, we're either given our time freely as researchers, or we're taking money from other research projects to play around and do this, or we're using students who are doing PhDs or other type of research to get this work done. There's actually not a lot of money or Backing behind this. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: That is exactly right. And, you know, if you want to do a proper study in real life, it's going to cost a lot of money because you now need controlled sort of circumstances. You need to fly people from point A to point B. uh, You know, so it's going to be costly. In this systematic review, what I saw, the better studies were the ones driven by the pharmaceutical companies. Because they have money behind them, you know, they can have controlled circumstances. They can fly people from New York to Milan and then do measurements before and after. While if you work with an athlete group, just what you said now, who's going to sponsor that, uh, firstly? And then secondly, will the athletes actually be happy to be part of a, a study like that?
0: Yeah. So, Krista, do you? We've kind of set that up really nicely now to talk about the methodology. Do you want to just talk us through the methodology, or the um, you know, such as the eligibility criteria, what we looked at, um, and how we kind of funnel those papers down into a into cohesive groups to basically make the grade or pass the uh, pass the line to be to be included.
1: Sure. So. Um for a systematic review one need to use scientific studies you can't use case studies case series uh, commentaries you know even not other systematic reviews so it boils down to getting Randomized controlled trials, which in this case were few and far in between, and on the other hand, the non-randomized controlled trials, where we can then look at observational studies and cohort studies. So, before we decided which studies to include, we had, as you said, the eligibility criteria, and for 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 our question to to answer our question, we decided that. If we include a study, there should have been a phase advance or a phase delay. It could have been in the lab or on, you know, in real life. But we didn't want to see if you can prevent jet lag or travel fatigue. We wanted to see how can you recover quicker from jet lag or uh, travel fatigue. Um, so all the articles included have been peer-reviewed, um, and we also wanted participants of um, 18 years or older. Because of the countries that uh, contributed, we stick to English um, as, a, as a language, and um, then we excluded those studies where they sort of shifted a phase that the people didn't travel. Uh, because as I said, we, we wanted to look at recovery from jet lag, not preventing uh, jet lag.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what did we? What did you leave out then, Krista, from the review? What was excluded? What would you not look at? So you said you had the basically um, case reports, um, abstracts. Was there anything else that wasn't included that might be similar?
1: Yes, and um, editorials. You know. Uh, Yeah. Previous systematic reviews and then further in the the methodology in and I think that's what took the most time, because as soon as you select your studies, there are quite a few processes that you need to go through to analyze these and appraise these uh, studies. Uh, You need to look at risk of bias. you look look at methodological quality, uh, you need to look at the level of evidence and the quality of evidence. Um, So, you know, each of those articles um, were then appraised by us to, to decide, do they fit our question? And... That is then how we summarized, uh, you know, all of the studies to, to, to just make sure that, that we sort of uh, dealt with all the, the things that I've just mentioned now.
0: Yeah, and the paper really highlights that. So like there's a couple of things there. If people aren't familiar with this and if you're interested for the, the bias, it was looking at the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool. So it was one tool that was applied. Mm-hmm. Then there was the Oxford Center for Evidence Based Medicine. That was the levels of evidence. So this is like was it a, a randomized control group or was it, you know, an observational study or you know, what was going on here? And then we also looked at the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. So it was the grade system. So um Lots of different kind of screening tools. I think it would be a way of, you know, to 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 depict or to to show the level of evidence. So it wasn't basically everything gets thrown into a bucket and here's what we think is happening. It was basically all done in context of how good these papers were.
1: Yes, and uh, and you know if we disagreed in the author group, you know, uh, we needed to sort that out. So. Uh, you may recall that we had emails going back and forth Uh, when we first submitted (laughs) the paper, uh, you know, one of the reviewers thought that we should be doing what we call a meta-analysis, which we couldn't do because of the diversity of the studies. Uh, So, yes, lots of interesting uh, little obstacles that you need to clear before you get a systematic review published.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so then, Krista, when we started looking at the data, there was basically two big, I suppose, buckets or bins, if you want to call it that, that we looked at, which were the um, pharmacological interventions, and we had the non-pharmacological interventions. Um, So these were the kind of two streams that we looked at. What I found really interesting was that we started off with like, um, you know, in one group, we started off in the non-pharmacological one with like 13, over 1300 papers, and we ended up with 11. And in the pharmacological ones, we started with five and a half thousand um, and ended up with 11 as well, which is quite interesting. Once we start applying those tools and looking for uh, relevancy to the paper, there's actually not that much out there, which uh, I think many people would be surprised with that in total. You know, you've got 20 odd papers out there in terms of jet lag management for athletes.
1: Yes, and even if you then look at that... uh 22 articles, Ian. Then you will, uh, what we did was, you know, we decided on the interventions, uh, pharmacologic and non pharmacological, from just all human literature. And then, interesting, in some of the studies, we couldn't find anything on athletes. So we then inferred from healthy populations. So there are even less than 20 studies um, in athletes, because for nutrition, we needed to infer from. Healthy population as well as for for the melatonin analogs, there were they were just no athlete studies available.
0: Yeah, and that's really nicely displayed in this table as well. Um, you know when we look at the with the evidence for non pharmacological interventions, when we talk about non pharmacological interventions, what would there be, um, Krista? What would people how what would what would you say to people? How would you describe them?
1: So uh, the things that we looked at were exercise because we think that training can help you to recover from uh, jet lag. Then we looked at sleep, Uh, you know, time of sleep. Uh, Did you use anything to help you to to, to go to sleep uh, when you travel? We also looked at light exposure or light avoidance um, studies. And then uh, nutrition, the meal and uh, not, only the meal time but also the composition of the meal and we wanted to look at fluids but we couldn't find any study on 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 that so So there's no studies on
0: no studies on hydration when flying for athletes no Mm.
1: we couldn't find any that was interesting you know so we're all telling people you should well, it's logical, we should keep um, hydrating when you fly and then afterwards keep your hydration. But there's no scientific studies on specifically hydration.
0: And there was no studies on basically you should fast when you're flying, you should eat at certain times, you should eat certain types of food for athletes?
1: No. So we found two studies on uh, nutrition and the one was in a group of military People um, that flew from America to Vietnam. And then we had another study on a pilot crew uh, that we inferred from for nutrition. Hmm.
0: But nothing on. Nothing yeah it's very surprising isn't it? i i i was quite surprised with with some of these tables and data sets once we kind of like you said we had these kind of discussions back and forth um which were quite interesting but uh, more interesting that it was even less available and uh probably the same for the pharmacological ones as well um quite low numbers as you said yeah. so what kind of pharmacological um categories or groups would you do do we have in this one
1: for the pharmacological groups, we, we looked at melatonin. Um, we looked at sleeping t- sleeping tablets. Uh, we also included stimulants. Um, then we also, there's, there's a new drug that's sort of used for people with uh, sleep problems, uh, narcolepsy and all of that. So that is the melatonin analogs. And then we wanted to see if there's anything on uh, cortisone or antihistamines. But for the latter two, we couldn't find any studies. Uh, For the melatonin analogs, we could only find studies in healthy population. Um, And then for for the sleeping tablets, you know, we didn't have good studies either. So, yes, a a, a huge gap in uh, scientific literature.
0: So when I read this, this table here, Krista, and this is really surprising because so many people talk about this on popular media, media, social media, athletes that are professional, non-professional athletes. We have basically zero studies relating to melatonin for athletes. We have zero studies relating to sedatives in athletes. We have four studies relating to stimulants, but they're not actually athlete-specific. Mm. And we have three studies relating to melatonin analogs, which are non-athlete-specific. Non-athlete, Glutocorturoids, we have none. And antihistamines, which are often used by jet lag people or shift workers, we have zero as well.
1: Yeah, exactly that. Um, (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) So sometimes facts are stranger than fiction, um, you know, Ian. Uh, We had two non-randomized controlled trials on melatonin. uh, But, you know, unfortunately, those studies um, had also been looking at the influence of light and exercise. So you couldn't just look at what the melatonin effect was. Um, And then the other problem with melatonin, although people are just taking it for athletes, some of the products may not be pure. And again, the water rules then Mm. come into play, you know, and there's also a, a, a lot of debate around what is the exact dose to take.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, because um, people wouldn't probably be aware of this. And it depends where you live and sort of what your frame of reference is. Like, if you go to the US or Canada, you can basically get melatonin across the counter with milligrams in it—three, five, ten milligrams in it—and you can just take that without a prescription. But here in Australia, when you get melatonin across the counter, we actually don't know what's in it. It's just like a herbal supplement. It's a factor number that's on it. We don't know what's in it, what it's been made with. And if you want melatonin, you have to actually go and get a prescription from a doctor for it. Mm. And um, so it's quite interesting that different countries or uh, maybe even different industries or WADA, USADA, and drug rules would have different sort of, um, I suppose, allowances or, you know, what you can and cannot take.
1: Yeah. And that, I think, you know, brings me back to a thought I had that, you know, it always surprises me how people, specifically athletes, are willing to use all sorts of supplements uh, that have no evidence towards you. (laughs) But then the one thing that I really think can make a difference nutrition, because we also need to think about the peripheral clocks, you know, the human circadian system is not only about the brain and feeling awake and alert. So in my mind, if we can, you know, get the nutrition right and get the peripheral clocks to resynchronize that may help and you know most food are not banned or or, or bad yeah so I'm really surprised that you know we don't have any studies on nutrition towards athletes and jet lag
0: well, Krista, I'm going to write down that question because in uh, two weeks' time, I'm recording a podcast with Professor Russell Foster. You may have heard of him. He's basically the guy who found uh, the cluster of cells in the superchiasmatic nucleus, which is the main body clock time. And so, I'll have Russell on the podcast um, discussing uh, a recent review he had published, but also Russell is, you know, extremely uh, famous for one of the better words from Oxford in this in this area of sleep and uh, bi- and biological clocks. So we'll be a. Uh, Chandra Russell about this. I'll be interested to hear his comments on this subject as well.
1: Yes, it will because be I think we've got
0: lots of work to do. Yeah,
1: and maybe we can get someone to sponsor a study for us. Like, then we can do a. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a, That's kind of a. You know what I was going to ask you coming up was, you no. Know, so we found all this, and well, we found less of this than we thought we were going to find. And and I still now when I look at this paper. And I have to say, when it came out on the weekend, I picked up the paper and I haven't haven't been involved in that. I'm still surprised every time I look at the tables. I still kind of look at it and go, maybe we missed something. This can't be real. I keep looking at it and going, even now again, talking to you, I'm like, surely there's more, but there really isn't, you know, and it's sort of... I'm nervous, you know, that we will get offers (laughs)
1: now writing to us and telling us, what about my study? Uh, But we really tried, you know, we, we, we went and um, I think we, we, we looked at four or five different databases, you know, and we were 14 people searching and we had librarians helping us. So <laughs> it seems like this is what it is.
0: Yeah, look, I, I hope somebody comes and goes. What about this? What about this? I, I think it's I think it'll be great if we do find it, but I, I doubt we will. Um, so it'll be it'll be great if we could find it. I'm sure some people will be emailing me after the podcast, um, articles from Men's Health and so on. Yeah. But let me tell you, that does not make a systematic review. <laughs> it's the levels of evidence we have to <laughs> we have to apply. So uh, we're not really interested, as Krista said, in YouTube videos or personal opinions. We need scientific evidence that shows um, the efficacy of these interventions after jet lag. So that's really what we were looking at. So it's important that when we do look at these things, we look at them through the the lens that we agreed upon, and we're not looking at just general jet lag information.
1: Yeah, and maybe also, you know, just to distinguish, because uh, at first we struggled uh, to explain our question. Uh, People can get confused because there are uh, papers available on sort of how to prevent, like I said earlier. But this is not what we wanted to see. We wanted to see how to recover. Um, You know, Peter Fowler, for example, had a few nice papers on uh, prevention of of jet lag. But that is a bit different. And so we excluded a lot of studies that looked at before rather than following a phase shift.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so even Peter didn't make the grade here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Peter, if you're listening. Um yeah. We we did try to get you in, but you are an author, so anyway. Yeah. Um so Krista, in, in summary, then from all that um all those findings or less less of those findings, how would you sort of describe um the outcomes of this paper? What would you say to people who are athletes? Or coaches, or you know, just individuals, basically who might be amateur athletes. What would you say from this? What sort of advice or what direction would you give them based upon this research?
1: Um, so, Ian, my recommendations to athletes currently, um, you know, looking at the literature that we have available, will still be that sleep is important because we know sleep helps to boost your immune system and it helps you to recover. So you know, you need to do to, to work on your sleep routine. I, I definitely think that, you know, it's ex- sort of avoiding light at the right time or getting light exposure can help people. Um, but if you get it wrong, you know, then it can be really detrimental. So you need to just understand when you should get your light exposure or try and uh, avoid light. And maybe one of the best things to tell athletes will be to before they go to sleep not to work on you know their cell phones their tablets computers because of the blue light and we know that you know that will actually wake you up rather than put you to sleep um, and then also nutrition i think you know getting your meal times as soon as you are you um, a Different destination to then set your meal times at the time of the destination to sort of try and adapt to the destination time as quickly as you uh, can. And although we don't have hard scientific evidence, I just think you know those things are logical to me, and I usually try and apply that when I uh, travel. I also think that there's a lot of mind games, you know, uh, with jet lag. If you decide you're going to feel tired and you have an excuse of jet lag, um, you will then suffer from that. Uh, And if you decide, you know, it's not going to really influence me, I need to get this game going or I need to get this meeting going. um, I I think you will uh, cope better. But to go back to the scientific evidence, It will be good if we can get scientific studies going where we use the same designs, um, you know, perhaps looking at the same flight direction, for example, because it's difficult to compare flying westwards with flying eastwards, for example. Um, So really getting the designs to be comparable so that we can in the end get scientific evidence to the athletes and not just my opinion or your opinion or someone else's.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we haven't even, I think that's just even the first cut of what we need to do because we haven't even discussed in this paper or even on this podcast yet, we haven't even discussed the other contributing factors such that might be, you know, age, weight, yeah. prevalence of sleep disor- sleep disorders, which may be exacerbated whilst traveling. Um, there may be, you know, uh, other medical issues, comorbidities, um, there could be a whole host of other factors that we haven't even considered yet and um, which are long-term or down the line that we have to look at and all of these things may have an effect on people now we I know from my own personal work Krista um, in shift work and performance where most of my probably paid workers comes from and my background is basically around shift work and performance and productivity and um, that's my core kind of thing and um, I know from that and working with people traveling around to flying out of mining operations and so on and that you're dead right about what you said about you can choose to feel tired or you can choose to kind of get over it and it's similar with shift work as well when people come off a block of night shifts you can basically have a crappy 24 hours and and get over it or you can drag that crappiness out to a week and we see the same in jet lag people as well you know when the fly Uh, For example, a guy one time from London to Singapore said it took him eight days to get used to the new time zone, and I said, "Well, that makes sense because it's a time zones. You know, you've gone across. So if you were basically not trying to get on the new time zone, it would take you eight days to adapt. And the same with shift workers when they come off night shift, it may take them a week to come back, get normal for days before they go back on a day shift. For example, so um, you know, kind of sometimes I think when we travel is just saying right the first twenty four hours on arrival." You may have to, you know, wash that off, so to speak, not do heavy training loads, not planning lots of meetings. You can't really hit the ground running. You might use this to what you said was increase your sleep, get light exposure at the right time, make sure you're managing your activity and also then get your timing of your meals correctly, because these are all really important things that will help you adapt to a new time zone. And we know this from other evidence outside of athletes.
1: Absolutely right.
0: Yeah. So I think there's lots of crossover as well um, with shift work from this paper. I know when I was reading, I was like, hmm, lots of stuff here on shift work as well around light. You know, I think the framework here would, if we were to do this for shift work disorder, um, would be would be appropriate or applicable as well. Because a lot of the, the things here are applicable to that similar type of discipline. And some would argue that shift work disorder is similar to jet lag disorder. Um, so maybe... Maybe some learnings there, and we might trigger somebody else to a systematic review in shift work.
1: Absolutely, I agree with you, um, Ian. And actually, we can learn a lot from uh, you know the shift workers' literature as well to apply to the athletes. Yeah,
0: yeah I agree. So, so Krista, um, now that this paper is all done um obviously there'll be lots of keen people out there trying to find funding that they can get it or lots of keen students or other researchers like myself what would you say is some of the areas of research that we need to focus on now from this review
1: um so Ian, you know, i would really like if we can get field-based studies going not you know the laboratory-based ones um but we also need to do to, to remember that you know we're not going to get 200 athletes at the time to do something that we want them to do so that's one of the problems uh, and limitations in this field that you work with a team of if if it's soccer it's a, it's about 15 players traveling if it's rugby you at least get 30 players traveling but it's really usually small sample sizes but maybe we need to um you know, this is what we have and this is what we need to, to work with. But I would love uh, field-based studies to, to get good designs um, and to focus perhaps on the things that we've mentioned, you know, exercise, light, nutrition, uh, the, the more natural things rather than the supplements and the medication to see if we can get to a point where we can good, get good scientific evidence to the athletes.
0: Yeah, I think as well, Krista on the back and I think I think there's also a next level as well that we don't really talk about a lot. I think you're right. I think it's hard to get lots of numbers and we often get criticized and I've got criticized before for papers gone, Oh, you've only had twelve athletes in this, but it's twelve elite judo athletes, or it's thirty elite rugby players, or you know, that's that's a lot in that in that regard um for that. For that, for that group, right? Mm. That's a lot of people. However, what I would like to see is big organizations and I'm going to pick on Super Rugby here just as an example because it's what I'm most familiar with in terms of sport. I would like to see Super Rugby at the top level maybe invest time and money into this and look at the effect of jet lag overall in the competition. Because I think that there may be an actual advantage in super rugby, given that teams are coming from New Zealand, Australia, Japan, South Africa, and Argentina. I think your geographical location may be an advantage straight away um, for that. And the number of games that you play as well and the scheduling of those games so that's the thing we could very easily do with biomathematical modeling, which is used in aviation shift work. We could work out which team had an advantage and which didn't, so to, sp- so to speak, got to do with like um, uh, potential performance or predictive performance. Mm-hmm. We could also then across the entire competition, you know, use things like wrist actigraphy monitors and we can use questionnaire based. So we could collect a very nice data set in one season with lots of different teams, which get, could get our numbers up over two to 300 with big squads, but I think what we need is we really need at the organizational level commitment. Yes, and um, around around us.
1: I I agree, and and we need funding, um, Ian. If we want to get multi center uh, collaborations going, um, you know, it's going to be expensive research. Uh, so we 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 do need, as you said, perhaps the organisations to come on board. Um, to give us the access to the athletes, but then also to, to finance.
0: Yeah. And I think like, if you look at other, other industries, really, it's not actually that much money in comparison to, you know, let we'll say you spoke about pharmaceutical companies in comparison to pharmaceutical companies. It's not that, mm. it's not that expensive, but maybe if there was some sort of grouping between like a super rugby, a pharmaceutical company and a university, we could um, very easily, potentially you know, spin out some research um, create funding opportunities for PhDs, postdoctoral um, fellows, uh, bring in experts as well and, and start really putting out good research that would not only benefit um, the sports teams, but I think at the public at large, because a lot of people look to these elite athletes, to what they're doing as to the best practices. And I think we could actually, uh, a case could be made that we would improve community health uh, population health and even the medical system because people would be looking towards elite athletes for guidance on these type of things. So um, every dollar we spend shouldn't be just, you know, attributed to performance for an athlete. It should be looked at in terms of, uh, you know, the effect it may have on people. Because I don't know about you, Krista, but I watch Rocky, I get up I, at four o'clock and I start punching the bag and running. So
1: it must do something. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. And actually, you said, you know, uh, you get many business people Flying around the world. Uh, we don't know exactly when that will happen again, but um, you know, so it's not only athletes. Um, so I do think that if uh, it, you know, it, it will be very possible to apply what we find in athlete groups to our community. That um, And we owe it to the community. We can't just because I think many times the elite athletes are spoiled, you know, they anyway getting a lot of um, extra things um, and it will be great to, to to just bring this knowledge down to the general public as well
0: yeah for sure well look Krista I know you're extremely busy and we're coming to the end of our time Um So um, how could people contact you, Krista, in the future? Is there any, if they wanted to contact you in regards to maybe talk about research, funding opportunities, research opportunities, how can people get a hold of you, Krista?
1: So um, in a few ways, my um, Twitter address uh, is at KristaJVR.com. Um, so I think that is easy with that difficult surname of me, you know, it's always <coughs> difficult to, to tell people what my email address, um, is, um, otherwise, you know, the university of Pretoria, if they go onto that website, they will find my sports medicine department and all my details are there as well.
0: Excellent. Well, look, um, Krista, we will put that information in the show notes for the episode. Okay. And, uh, if people want to contact you, they can. And um, we'll put the link into this paper as well so people can have a look at the paper as well. Um, Yeah, at least at the abstract anyway, and they can have a look.
1: Thank you. Krista,
0: thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I know you're extremely busy and thank you for uh, inviting me onto this paper. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And um, hopefully we can work on some other projects in the future as well.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, And thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it and I hope that the people will enjoy the talk as well
0: excellent thanks Krista
1: thank you stay safe
0: so once again thanks to Krista for coming on the podcast today we really appreciate it um so yeah don't forget to head over to sleepforperformance.com.au for the show notes or any other information as well follow us at sleep for perform on twitter and check us out on facebook as well where we will be uh, posting uh, blogs and up-to-date information and particularly we have a lot of stuff there around the COVID-19 or Corona times as I'm calling it now there for you as well and we also have Sleep for Performance TV up on YouTube we've got a couple of uh, webinars up there as well which you can head over one of them is my talk or chat with Dr. John Illiff an emergency physician this was at the, the early sort of uh, the breakout of Corona and also then we had a podcast looking at sleep immunity mental health and physical health sorry, webinar uh, with Dr. Mita Singh, Dr. Michael Gratner and myself that's up on youtube as well anyway it's friday evening here so enough talking from me i'm off for a walk sleep well